Welcome to the Weekly Benefit Roast, featuring Benefit Indemnity Corporation's President, Roger Bain. Roger has devoted more than 30 years to understanding and developing innovative health benefits plans for large groups and groups as small as five employees. Our moderator is Bob Graham. Take it away, Bob. Hello, hello, hello. It is the Benefit Roast brought to you by Benefit Indemnity Corporation. It is the 22nd of July, 2019, and I am excited about this uh, uh, today because I've got Roger on the hook to answer a question for me, and we started the discussion earlier, and I said, no, no, let's wait and do it on the air. So we're going to do it on the air. But before we get rolling, real quick, if you want to chat with us and give us some feedback, you are welcome to put your comments in the chat box and we will add them into our discussion. We have so many people on this uh, webinar and call that we just can't get to all of them. So we'll try to get you as quickly as possible. I see John in Ohio. I see Susan in Oregon. Welcome. Hello. Uh, uh, they're going by too fast, Roger. I can't read them all. I see Steve, Rick, Aaron, Mary. Bob, it's okay. We know okay. they're there. All right. I just, you know what? I, I like <laughs> this when this is people, not romper room. I like when people are affirmed for spending their time with us. So I just wanted to get that out there. So, Roger, today we're going to talk about financing and self-funded insurance. And I told you earlier, I was reading over the weekend. And I read a piece, I don't remember where it was, but it said that if you're doing self-funding, one of the benefits for an owner of a business is they can hold off on making payments, not monthly payments, but they make payments only when the claims come in. And you had a point of view on that. So can you share that with me? Well, yeah, Bob. I mean, the reality is that there are, self-funding is a, pretty broad world. And this is one of the things that's interesting about it is that it can be outrageously flexible or it can be standardized and turnkey in certain situations. And as you go through the market in self-funded, you'll find that the larger the group, the more flexible it is for a variety of reasons that become pretty obvious once you start looking at it. For example, a large group that has millions of dollars a month in their budget for health benefits doesn't need the same financial protection, the same level of insurance or cash flow protection that a small employer with five or ten thousand dollars a month in benefit expense. And so what happens is the large group will typically fund claims as they occur. Oftentimes, uh, an administrator will calculate the amount of claims that are due to be paid, and then they will email the employer or the plan sponsor. The plan sponsor will deposit money to a zero balance account. That money is wire drafted, and the administrator then cuts the checks. Sometimes it's not even a wire transfer. Sometimes the administrator is actually writing employer checks and they're being drafted from this account. So the money's deposited into a checking account to cover benefits. The administrator prints and signs those checks electronically and sends them out. So in that scenario, that's true. For the large group world- Define that, large group, if you would. So what's the number of employees? What's the revenue? Or how do we define well, that? It, it could be as low as 25 and 50 employees, but usually we're talking about 
uh, a group that's actually having their own checks written by an administrator in the hundreds of employees. So big companies. Yeah, big companies. And, and as you get smaller, you see different hybrid variations of that. But as you get smaller, you also find that the convenience factor is much higher for a small employer if they go ahead and fund a pro rata amount every month that is there in their account ready to be used to pay for claims as they come in. Because in a small group, you might not see a lot of claims action or a whole lot of claims activity. So if one or two claims come in, why do we want to wait for those to get paid? We want prompt payment. We want the administrator to be able to write the check, pay the physician's office and be done. Number one. Number two. So in that case, it would be a lot like how uh, people do budget billing for their um, electricity. For the utility right? bill. Yeah, that's kind of that way. You're taking their annual exposure and you're breaking it into 12 monthly allotments and saying, fund this each month. And we know you're not going to run short. And at the end of the year, if we have more than we need to, we adjust by sending your money back. Okay. You know, or crediting it to next year or whatever you want to do with it. I okay. mean, there's a lot of things. It's your money. It's sitting in the account for you in your account, actually. It's made up. It's a separate account made for you at the administrator's level in most cases. So bottom line is you have this money that is earmarked. It's yours. And the, the real key is convenience, expedience, and making sure that we don't delay claims payments because we've got to send a separate bill to a small employer who might not have an HR department, may have a bookkeeper, may not. And sometimes, uh, you know, if if they're on vacation, if the owner of the company and his family is on vacation, checks wait for two weeks. And you don't want to do that with medical claims. And so there's a variety of ways to do that, and we provide protection for that. So, Roger, it, it strikes me that if I've never done self-funding before, how do you figure out that right amount for that first year? You have no track record to work with. Well, in the first year, that amount of money comes from the actual rates and the proposal you're given. Okay. As you develop a, a health plan, the underwriters and the actuary will tell you what your exposure is. Um, and should you buy the plan, that's what your exposure is. You get X number of dollars per employee per month and X number of dollars per dependent per month, et cetera. Okay. And you know that that's your exposure. So you're going to be billed based on the enrollment of your group. Okay. And if you're billed at the maximum, then you know you don't have to worry about it. And if you're in a large group scenario, you're going to have those same factors, but you might only pay claims as necessary. So it could be a large number, but it might not be the maximum number. Okay. And as I understand it, an employer would have options on how they want to do this, right? It's not one size fits all. It's a whole bunch of different variables that can go into make it affordable or approachable for them economically, correct? Um, I, I would say, yes, there are options. But those options, once you get down to the bottom line are depending upon what you buy. Once you buy a plan or an, a design or a situation, that is what you're buying. A lot of times in the small group, you're not going to have the same options. You're going to be funded at the max no matter what. Okay. And that's, and that's probably prudent okay. because sometimes a small employer doesn't have the same cash flow as a large employer does. You don't want them to go six months with no claims, have everything running along, and all of a sudden get $20,000 worth of claims and then not have the money on hand. Right. Cash flow can be a real issue. So funding this on a disciplined monthly regimen 
is is required by a lot of the small group proposals. That's what they're going to suggest and or request and often even require. Now, as the group gets larger and you move more toward what you would call a traditional self-funded plan, then this flexibility expands. Okay. And at that point, it could be, you know, we'll, we'll send you a wire transfer every week or every month, or we'll deposit a certain amount. And when that runs low, we'll put more. You know, it could be any number of ways, or it could be, like I said, in the most sophisticated way, the administrator is going to write those checks on your account and you're going to deposit the money into that zero and tell them they can go ahead and release those checks. And so once the administration is done and the adjudication of the claims is done, you're alerted of an amount of your liability, you fund the account and they release the checks. Okay. Are there any tax implications? I know you're not a tax expert, but if I pay, here we are as we do this in July, could I pay my entire August 1st, 2019 to July 31st, 2020 before the end of the year and get some sort of tax benefit from that? Or is that not possible? The, I've got them thinking today. The, the reality is it's, it's kind of a twofold answer. Okay. If you are an employer and you establish a trust mm -hmm. and that trust is the vehicle you're using to fund your health benefits. Okay then when you deposit money into that trust, it is deductible at the time you deposit that money. Okay. But that money can then never be spent for anything other than health and welfare benefits. Okay. If as the employer, you only fund claims from the general revenue of your company as required, then that's not in a trust and that money belongs to you. And it's not necessarily committed forever. So, you know, most schools of thought are that if you're depositing money at the administrator purely for convenience, you're not setting up a trust account or funding that. You're paying from your general revenues. You're throwing in an allowance every month so that the administrator has this convenience fund to write the checks from, and that's what you have. Okay. So, so the reality is only when that money is spent on benefits is it fully deductible. So, or if it's deposited into a trust, then it's deductible. Okay. And what percentage of companies you deal with typically do trust? Is it a small number or a large number? A very small number. Um, in my market, in the smaller group market, which is where we do most of our work. Under in, in 50 or 100 employees. Yeah, or under 100 employees okay. typically. But sometimes even in the larger employers, they don't establish a trust. Okay. They'd rather fund directly from their own revenues and have flexibility on what they do with the savings down the road. Uh, so that's usually what happens. Oh, so with the trust, if I get a refund, it's got to go back to that. Well, yeah, trust. you don't get a refund. The money just stays in a trust. Right. So and, you that, and you can you use can't it. You get that benefit we've talked about in other episodes. Right. You can use it to offset future expenses for the health and welfare benefit plan for the employees. But once you establish that trust and make deposits in it, that money in that trust can only be used for funding benefits. Okay. Gotcha. And wow. so that's why it's deductible when it goes in, because it's considered spent. Right. 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 By, the, by the IRS. But if if the money you're using is just general revenue of the company and general resources of the company, then it's not spent on benefits. It's not deductible until it is. That's probably one of the challenges we have in the small group market. There are probably a lot of employers deducting their full contribution every month when really they should only be deducting the amount that's actually spent on claims, not what the administrator is holding in that convenience account. 
Okay. <laughs> and so, so if they, so the the converse to that, to be accurate in a tax basis, and, and not again, not, you're not, not a tax professional. Not, We're not, not a tax, tax advice. Exactly. Thank you. But what I would say to you is that if if you're deducting all of that amount when you're paying it each month, you better sure claim any claim surplus or refund that you get back as income. And that would be kind of the corollary to that. But I, I don't know that that's the proper means for that. I think the proper means is to deduct what's spent each month and then calculate from there. But so, in so some the, small group packages, that's very challenging to do. And the prudent person who, the owner who's doing uh, self-funding is probably talking to a CPA or tax expert about these things along the way anyway, correct? I would think so. Um, and, and if not, their insurance agent should be giving them the right direction or we will. But again, it's probably not a really big deal in most small groups because it all comes out in the wash if they handle it appropriately. Right. So, Are there other issues related to financing? We talked briefly about it this morning, and uh, I got the sense that this was a hot issue for you in terms of things you would wish that people would understand. What else is there about financing of a well, I don't, I don't, benefit? I don't know that it's so much a hot issue. It just seemed very timely that I was in a conference in St. Louis two weeks ago, and we had three people in succession speaking about self-funded from different perspectives. And the first speaker was really used to doing large group self-funding. And the second speaker was from a stop loss MGU or managing general underwriter company that issues stop loss coverage. Uh, at, Why don't you explain what stop loss coverage is in case someone's new to this? Okay. Because that's kind of overwhelming. Right. Well, when, a, when an employer buys or designs a health benefit plan and decides to self-fund that, that entails a lot of risk. So often they will buy what we call stop loss insurance to protect them from that risk going higher than they would like to see it go. So they buy insurance to protect them against the exposure of their benefit promise to their employees. So they might say, I want to spend $5,000 per person. That's the cap. And then they get insurance for above that. Or I want to spend $100,000 over the course of the entire year. I'm giving very low numbers, I realize. Well, not only giving low numbers, but you're also giving numbers that in a kind of a different direction. Really, what they're going to do is going to, they're going to ask for a, a proposal from an insurance company, and the insurance company is going to tell them what it would cost. Okay. Um, and project a cost out to them rather than them making a request okay. for a certain amount. So once an employer says, I'd like to see proposals for self-funded, then the various insurance companies and carriers will develop their actuarial assumptions and their proposal and deliver it to them. Um, so that's the deal okay. there. So I caught you, I got you to talk about what stop loss was, and you said there were three groups, uh, three people speaking. One was large group right. funding. And the other one was a, a stop loss distributor that handled getting stop loss in the hands of employers that want to self-fund their coverage. And then I was the third. And it was just an interesting point that the first speaker said, I never tell anybody to fund the maximum claims, and I never sell based on the maximum claims. I sell on the expected claims because that's really what we expect to happen. And if it goes the other way, we make sure they understand the liability and the exposure, but that's not really what we're intending. And I had to counter that, and I got agreement from the previous two speakers during my talk because they agreed that it was a different perspective. As you look in the smaller group market, those employers really do want to know that they have a maximum exposure that they can budget. 
and, and it's not going to create a major shock to their stop loss and that, or to their budgets, excuse me, and their benefit budgets. If, if it creates a major shock for their small employer, for their budgeting and their cash flow, then that's a big challenge for small employers. So self-funded plans have evolved over the years to give them much more conservative approaches. With that really conservative approach, you lose a little bit of that flexibility of funding claims whenever they happen. Instead, you're kind of putting up a monthly allotment each month uh, and, and being billed at the maximum exposure. And then hopefully you don't have to spend it all. You get some back. Okay. Wow. You have, uh, you've given us a lot to think about in just 15, 20 minutes today. I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm overwhelmed. I think what if I let me see if I can explain this back to you because you you threw a lot at me. It seems like everything with self-funding for smaller groups is really set up now with the goal of making sure that they have a consistent amount of payment month to month over the course of the year to ensure that they don't have peaks and valleys. That way they are not caught in a situation where they're paying a huge claim out and having to scramble to find the money. It's a budgeting function more than anything else. Is that correct? That is correct. <laughs> okay. Well, there you have it. The student, I mean, the student has learned the lesson from the teacher today. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that it's it's really not as complicated as people like to make it think. But there's a few moving parts that they're not used to. So once they establish what those parts are and put them together, it's a really easy model. It, it does feel different than what traditional insurance would look like because you just get that, as you say every time, you know, here's your number or your number's going up or no, right? And there's not a lot of flexibility and a not, not a lot of discussion. It just is or isn't. With this, it sounds like there's more flexibility. And when there's flexibility, that always raises the uh, complexity level. Well, I think in a way that's probably true. Flexibility does make something more complicated. Otherwise, you couldn't be flexible, right? right. That'd be, that's by nature. By definition, flexible has more parts than inflexible. So, so we, we can certainly look at that. But at the same time, that flexibility also comes with additional rewards that you don't get in that fully insured market that's locked down tight. You know, the real key when all of this is said and done in funding mechanisms and insurance, do you want to give all your money to the big insurance company and let them keep what you don't spend? Or do you want to give less money to the insurance company and keep what you don't spend? It's kind of that simple. That's really simple. So thank you for that as well. Anything else you want to say today, Roger? I think that wraps it up for me on this it's issue. I think the, we covered it pretty well. It's the point where people can, uh, if you've been polite enough to listen to us as we talk through the finances today, you can get access to a cup of coffee or a cup of joe on us. Roger's going to put up the special code. You can go to www. I don't think anyone says that anymore. I'm not sure why I did. Yeah. Benefitindemnity.co, not com, .co slash Benefit Roast Attendee Form. It's in the uh, chat box if you don't want to type all that. Give us your information. We will send you a virtual cup of coffee. We'll actually send you a way that you can get a cup of coffee on us as a thank you for spending time with us today. And Roger, I think we should close this really soon because behind you, I can see out the window that it is dark and stormy, and I am afraid that we are going to lose our access. Yeah, so we thank could lose you, power. everyone. Have a great day. We'll be back next week with another dis 
discussion of the of self-funded benefits. And if you were here, you'd watch Roger just spill the bottle of water on his desk. So with that, we bid you adieu. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Benefit Roast, a weekly discussion sponsored by Benefit Indemnity Corporation. Employers in a wide range of fields are using employer-owned health benefits plans to deliver better benefits to their employees at a lower cost. Learn more at BenefitIndemnity.co. That's BenefitIndemnity.co. See you again next week.